Hey, Scott, we're doing another score show. Really? What kind of themeless, tuneless, empty, boring, lifeless, athematic, amelodic drack are we listening to this time? This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Listeners, and welcome to Star Wars Month here on the Police to Be Nation Pop Feed, uh, where we here at the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, I, Glenn Butler, and my brother Scott, are doing our part by taking a look at the musical dimension of the franchise, starting with John Williams' seminal 1977 Star Wars. So, at this late date, what is left to say about the music of Star Wars? It's pretty good, huh? Surprisingly enough, I mean, I didn't think that we'd really have anything to say about Star Wars, because it's not like no one has talked about this score before, and it's not like we haven't listened to it before. But surprisingly enough, I found a lot of stuff in it that like, I had never really taken notice of before. Because I've never really listened to this score with a mind toward analyzing it or critiquing it. I've only ever listened to it because it's awesome. Yeah. And so I found a lot of stuff in there that I had never really consciously taken notice of before because I was never really paying attention in that way before. And you know what the really big revelation was to me that I discovered listening to this for the podcast? What was your big revelation? This is really good. Uh, yeah, it actually is. No, but like, we've talked about the Star Wars scores before. Like, during, I think it was during the last Jedi show where you, like, ranked all the Star Wars scores just spontaneously because it came up in conversation. Because that's the thing that happens. Star Wars scores just come up in conversation, so you just spontaneously rank them all. And I ranked this one pretty far down because it was like, you know, oh, it was the first one, so it gets points for originality, but, you know, on the shoulders of giants and all. And so the other ones wound up being better, but... No, this is really fucking good! I've been sleeping on how good Star Wars is! That's an amazing sentence, really. I've been sleeping on how good a score Star Wars is. Yeah, because I've been making you listen to Dunkirk the last couple of years. Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) I think it's interesting when listening to this, I don't want to say with fresh ears, because it's literally, like, hammered into my soul, pretty much, by how much I've listened to it for almost my whole life. What do you mean, almost your whole life? I've been listening to this score for longer than your whole life. (laughs) Sure. I think the interesting tension that I felt listening to this for the podcast was how much it feels of a piece in John Williams' career as it stood in the late 70s, 
and how much it feels of a piece with everything that's come after. Like, there are elements in here that don't continue in the rest of the Star Wars franchise and the rest of the Star Wars scores, and there are bits of instrumentation and, and some of the compositional habits that Williams had at the time that changed as he developed as an artist over time that very much put it in its time, but obviously so much of it has been developed and dwelt on and repeated in the future that it's kind of in a weird liminal space. You brought up several things that I want to get into more in depth. Okay. <laughs> the one thing I'll mention off the bat, though, is that there's a lot in this score that I didn't think was in Star Wars scores this early. Really? Not like major things. I mean, okay, there is the one point where Jin Erso's theme is in there, and that was kind of like, whoa! things like that, but just like little musical flourishes and background elements that feel very prequels to me, and all of a sudden they're there in the middle of a track on New Hope. That is really interesting to think about how much might have been picked up on later in terms of little things that identify it as a Star Wars score. There's a lot of little things like that, like just patterns. Not not major themes or motifs, but just patterns, where I'm like, I recognize that from the prequels. I didn't think it existed before the prequels. And so, I'm sort of proving myself wrong, because I was very worried, what do we possibly have to say that's new about a 40-year-old score? But there's stuff I never noticed before, because I never listened to it with that sort of analytical mindset. So it's very interesting. I'm eager to see what the other two bring us. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think it's interesting to consider it in the context of its time, though, and its place in Williams' career, because it's not like he was a very young musician at the time. He had already been in Hollywood for 25 years, playing and then composing for TV and movies, so he, he had already had several like distinct phases of his career. He did a bunch of zany comedies at the end of the 60s and then moved into dramas and did musicals and adaptations and a string of disaster movies. Including, arguably, Jaws. What do you mean, arguably? Oh, well, genre distinctions again, right? I was gonna say, there's not an argument that he didn't do Jaws? I, yeah, I'm not saying it's arguable that he scored Jaws. He very, he very much did. <laughs> it was one of the two Oscars that he already had by the time he did Star Wars. So, a counterfactual occurs to me, that if Star Wars had flopped and they'd never made any more then this score would have just sat in some LP collections, the tapes would have sat in the 20th Century Fox archives, Filmscore Monthly probably would have released an expanded edition of it in 2004 that would have been noticed by a few hundred or a thousand niche fans, 
And it would have kind of laid there, instead of being elaborated upon and analyzed and, and, and repeated in so many ways over, over so many years. Instead of being the single most significant influence on the next 40 years of film music? Yes. Instead of ushering in another age of film scoring and, inf- and influencing infinitely many movies over the next decades, and being the highest-selling soundtrack album for the next 20 years... Instead of being the most influential movie score of the last 50 years, and widely acclaimed as the best movie score of the last 50 years, it could have been akin to James Horner's Battle Beyond the Stars. Except without Star Wars, Battle Beyond the Stars wouldn't have gotten a thematic orchestral score. (laughs) But without Star Wars, Battle Beyond the Stars would not have been made. That too. Well, I don't know. It was a shitty B-movie. They they were still making those. Yes, but they weren't making shitty B-movies specifically targeted at ripping off the Star Wars audience. Sure. I mean, that's another thing. If you think about some of the significant sci-fi movies and their scores in the age before Star Wars, a lot of them are concentrating on modernistic composition, aggressively modernistic sometimes, Weird orchestrations, exotic instruments. You think of things like Forbidden Planet, Planet of the Apes, uh, lots of synthesizers. Think of things like Logan's Run to kind of emphasize the sci-fi setting and re-emphasize it. And the score in Star Wars is doing something very, very different, where the sci-fi setting, the space setting, is in the dialogue, it's in the visuals, it's in the special effects, and the score is grounding it in a very well-established, romantic, orchestral mood. It's kind of hard to talk about the score on its own without talking about the movie as a whole. Sure. Because... Like, the way the score was maybe the most influential film score of the last 50 years, Star Wars is the most influential movie of the last 50 years. I mean, if you look at sci-fi before Star Wars and sci-fi after Star Wars, you look at the entire business practice of blockbusters before Star Wars and after Star Wars. So it is the most influential movie as well, in addition to the most influential score within its niche, so it's kind of hard to separate the two. Like, a lot of those sci-fi things that you're bringing up were, like, deliberately trying to push their otherness. Right. Deliberately trying to show the audience this alien world by making them feel alienated. Exactly. Whereas Star Wars just completely flipped that on its head and tried to make the audience empathize with this alien world by making it very grounded and relatable and human. I mean, that's the point of the story structure, too. Doing, you know, well-trodden hero's tale. That's the point of the story structure, that's the point of the way the characters are drawn, and it's the point of the way that the score is written. Right. So it's hard to talk about those things in isolation. Fair. Some things that I wasn't entirely aware of, that I sort of knew in the back of my head, but like I said, I'd never really thought about this score analytically before. From the time the droids escape from the ship after the Empire takes it over until they all escape Tatooine on the Millennium Falcon, like the entire time they're down on Tatooine, the only time the entire orchestra is used is for Binary Sunset. The entire rest of that time, you don't hear the orchestra. It's like a couple of instruments, it's like a section, it's a little bit here and there, 
It's all very spare. Like, the first five or ten minutes of it, of the droids stranded on the planet, are without score. And then you get, like, the weird Jawa theme, and you get, like, a couple of horns playing music, but you never hear the entire orchestra between when the droids crash and when the Millennium Falcon escapes. The only, like, two seconds where you actually hear the entire orchestra playing is Binary Sunset. But what about Burning Homestead? Okay, I think you're right. Burning Homestead might be another. But even in that track, it's only for, like, five seconds. When they find the sand crawler, it's like a solo horn with some background. build-up to Luke running back home. It's, like, very background stuff. There's not really anything in the foreground. And the only time you really hear what could be described as a full orchestra is, like, four or five seconds when he arrives home. And as soon as he sees the bodies and the devastation, the orchestra drops away again, and it's just, like, one horn playing that mournful note. Very judiciously, yeah. A lot of the orchestration in the movie is a little more spare than you might expect. But one of the things about the Star Wars score structurally is that I think the whole orchestra is very, very well used. The themes move from different sections in many, many cues. In the um, Imperial Attack sequence at the beginning... You know, for, from the uh, shootout with, with the rebels through the arrest of, of Princess Leia and then, you know, the droids es- escaping. The Imperial theme in this film, which we'll get to, is passed between sections of the orchestra. That's done again later on in Obi-Wan's house when he's telling Luke about Darth Vader. That Imperial theme gets passed between the bassoons and, and low trumpets and, and, you know, back and forth with the woodwinds. Some of the orchestrations might be a little spare, but they all get their time. And I think it is interesting to make that a little more spare when we're on the desert planet to kind of emphasize the desolation of that environment. Yeah, all the techniques during that entire Tatooine sequence are really fascinating to me. Like, you've got a track and a half of the Jawa music, which is just this odd, quirky theme played with an odd, quirky collection of instruments to underscore these odd, quirky little people. (laughs) 
and then they pull up to the moisture farm, and, like, all of that drops away, and they play Luke's theme. And it's, like, the most bog-standard, normal, play-a-theme collection of instruments you could imagine. It's not the whole orchestra, I think it's only like one or two horns that play like the foreground and the background is very spare. So like it's still not like the full like 92 or 110 piece orchestra or whatever, but it's just such a stark fucking contrast compared to the track and a half of Jawa music that's preceded it. It's, it's kind of astonishing. And I think that's such a good contrast, too, because that's the first time you're hearing that theme since the main title. And if you're watching the movie for the first time, you hear this big gargantuan brass theme in the main title. And then when you hear it again, you don't hear it for any of the heroics of the rebels during the shootout or the capture of the ship or the interrogation of Princess Leia or, or any of that or, or the droids trying to evade capture by the Jawas. You hear it again in this gentle environment when you see Luke for the first time and you know this is our hero, this is the star of the movie. It's also... I mean, even if you don't remember the theme and connect the two, because, like, if you're watching it for the first time, maybe right. you don't remember, oh, I heard that tune played on a vastly different collection of instruments. Yeah, like 20 a, minutes ago. 20, 20, 25 minutes ago, played on a vastly different collection of instruments with a vastly different flavor and feeling. Even if you don't recognize it, you know just from the transition between the two styles and from the way the theme is presented, it's very much a message of this is home. Right. That's what that stylistic change and the way they present the theme, that's what they're saying. This is home. This is where we center ourselves. And I found it very interesting the way that they used Luke's theme in various iterations. Because you don't really hear another heroic rendition of it until they're doing the shootout on the Death Star when they break out Princess Leia. Exactly. And right before that, they play it again when they're like... They're playing all of this music for them, like, you know, sneaking onto the Death Star and evading the Imperials, and they're in danger, and they're trying to be stealthy, and they're sneaking around, and it's a lot of this, like, spare, sneaky, try-not-to-be-noticed sort of music. And then all of a sudden they play a rendition of Luke's theme, and just from the contrast in musical styles, it sounds so fucking naive and idealistic. Yeah. Just from the way they play the music!
Like, not even watching the film or knowing the dialogue at that exact point. Again, I don't know exactly what scene that's from, but just from the way they play the music. I got the message, oh, this dude is just impossibly fucking naive and in over his fucking head compared to the last two minutes of sneaking around trying not to get killed by the Imperials music. Just from listening to the CD, I got that crystal clear. Just from the way they played Luke's theme. And it's like another couple of minutes later before we finally get a heroic rendition of the theme. Like, this is our hero and he's doing heroic things. that one particular theme in different flavors, not only did it feel so very different, but it sent such specific messages. Absent dialogue and scenery and absent everything else, just listening to a CD. The way they played that theme, the way they flavored that theme, the way they angled it with the instrumentation and the performance and whatever, they were able to send such specific messages about the character just with the way they played that same theme. They didn't change the theme in any way. It's the exact same notes, it's the same melody, but just the way they played it, it didn't just like feel a little different. It sent very specific messages about exactly what you're supposed to feel about this guy, even without seeing the guy or the situation. That kind of amazed me. I think it's interesting to consider the spotting of Luke's theme, like where it appears in the movie and where it doesn't. Because there are a lot of scenes where you could have had Luke's theme appear as the big heroic theme, but instead it's Ben Kenobi's theme. But instead it's the rebel fanfare. Well, we can talk about Ben Kenobi's theme, because you want to talk about where it's used and where it's not. Well, I, I just think it's interesting how there are just a few of the action sequences that are picked out to have Luke's theme. Like, the final battle doesn't have Luke's theme at all until he's the last X-Wing left. He's alone in the Death Star Trench with the TIE Fighters. Then his theme comes back. Before that, there's Ben Kenobi's theme, there's the Imperial theme, kind of dueling for, for a few minutes. Yeah, when they launch the fighters, and then for a lot of that battle, they use Ben Kenobi's theme, which makes no sense if you think of it as Ben Kenobi's theme, and it still doesn't make sense if you think about it as the Force theme. There's a lot of stuff they use in this movie, because like ordinarily I would criticize, like, why are you using this theme in this part that confuses me? What's the theme supposed to mean? I don't understand why it's in this scene when the meaning that I thought the theme had isn't in this scene. But there's a lot of places in this movie where they use a piece of music and their rationale, because, you know, I've seen, I know of this score. It's been the most famous score in the world for 40 years. And I know that their rationale for why they used particular themes in particular places, like, how come when Ben Kenobi dies, there's a big rendition of Princess Leia's theme? How come when Luke is dreaming of the future he doesn't think he'll ever be able to achieve, it plays Ben Kenobi's theme? Their rationale for all of these choices is basically, it sounded good. Which, I mean, you can't argue, it does! 
I think that's pretty explicitly the rationale for playing Princess Leia's theme after Ben Kenobi dies. Yeah. And it's the reason why they added Ben Kenobi's theme to Binary Sunset. Because, remember, originally Binary Sunset didn't have Ben Kenobi's theme. There's even a track on the special edition CD of the alternate Binary Sunset without Ben Kenobi's theme. And at some point, somebody said, Hey, John, you've got this really great theme. Why don't you put that there? Well... That alternate Binary Sunset and some of the other more athematic tracks, you know, the destruction of Alderaan and, and some of the other Death Star scenes, are what really make me identify the score with this period of Williams' career, because absent the specific Star Wars themes, just the style and the instrumentation and the sound of the recordings of that period... I mean, that alternate Binary Sunset, since it doesn't have any of the, the Star Wars themes in it, that could be from one of the other scores of, of this period. And, and just having that sound is like putting on a warm blanket. See, I looked at it almost exactly the opposite of that. The thing about the alternate Binary Sunset isn't just that it doesn't have the Force theme. It doesn't have any theme in it. It's just like a track of some music. And so I experienced that much the same way that I experienced a lot of Williams' later output, where he stopped doing, like, the giant, bold themes like he had for Star Wars and Superman and Indiana Jones and the like, where he sort of toned that down in later years. And the alternate Binary Sunset track is Williams once he stopped doing those giant, monumental themes. Listenable, capable, eminently forgettable. I want to go back to some of the uses of Ben Kenobi's theme, which I would argue in this movie is actually Ben Kenobi's theme, because of the role that he plays in the story, where in addition to just being a character, Ben Kenobi, he also represents Luke's future and Luke's destiny. And that's what he's thinking about in the binary sunset scene. There are notes from the original LP from 1977 in the final battle and the throne room, both of which use Ben Kenobi's theme, where Williams talks about the battle and the success of the rebels as re-establishing Ben Kenobi's philosophy, basically. Where he saw that at the time, when there weren't any follow-ups, as the rebels won, they're re-establishing a sense of the old republic that Ben Kenobi represents. And so... I don't think you have to just say it was the best theme to use in that moment because it sounded the best, which, incidentally, it did, but there are also <laughs> there are also interpretive reasons for that. Yeah, but those interpretive reasons came after the fact. I mean, maybe he chose the throne room tune for that reason, but pretty explicitly in those same notes, the reason they put Ben Kenobi's theme in Binary Sunset is because the track just wasn't working, and somebody said, hey, why don't you put this theme in there? Well, yeah, after the original cue was recorded, you know, it was decided to kind of rethink it. But I think putting Ben Kenobi's theme in there is eminently valid. I mean, Luke is considering his future. He's considering, you know, do I want to stay on the farm or do I want to go off into space? And Ben Kenobi represents going off into space. At that point in the story, Ben Kenobi doesn't really represent anything yet. Like, if you want to call that the Luke's Destiny theme, and the reason it's used for Ben Kenobi is because Ben Kenobi plays a large role in Luke's Destiny, that's one thing. But if you want to call it Ben Kenobi's theme, then Ben Kenobi's not there, and isn't part of the story yet. Ben he's, pa he's part of the story before he physically appears. If you want to start getting all metaphysical about everything. Yeah, well, we're talking about story and character and music, so yeah. 
now you're getting into stuff that, as I was listening to this, I was just reflecting that I'm glad they didn't plan all this out beforehand so that there's stuff that specifically isn't in this movie. Like, if they were written the way that series are written today, I could picture a version of this movie where, at some point, Princess Leia says, Oh, I was so lonely as a child, I wish I had a brother. Oh my god. You know? There's a version of this movie where Darth Vader says, Hey, you know, give me those stolen plans, and Leia says, You can't order me around, you're not my father. There's a lot of stuff like that that I was just reflecting on and thinking, Man, I'm glad they didn't have a plan. Yeah. Because the way people often handle hinting at things is just so bad. I'm glad they just didn't. There are absolutely aspects of the score, just as there are aspects of the movie, that benefit the less they are retroactively affected by the rest of the franchise. <laughs> like, there's some place in the multiverse where, for the special edition or the DVD edition or the Blu-ray edition or something, they went and rescored all the scenes with the Imperial theme and replaced them with the Imperial March. That was, in fan circles, discussed and debated and dreaded. And it never happened, but there's, you know, Earth 452, it might have. I'd be very curious to hear that. I used to think that would be good. It would, like, you know, really draw everything together, you know, rather than this one sort of being the oddball. Because, you know, if you look at it from the perspective of the rest of the series, then there's a lot of points where you just have to, like, pat New Hope on the head and say, "Oh, they didn't know any better back then. You know, what's this thing they're playing instead of the Imperial March? Aw, oh, they didn't know any better. Why is Luke lusting after his twin sister? Aw, oh, they didn't know any better. I've really gained a new appreciation for the Imperial theme from this movie, though. Oh yeah, totally. That's that. That's what I was saying. There are times when I'm like, that would be really interesting to hear if they would like take the themes that were developed later and add them back into this movie. Like, you know, if they used the Imperial March when Darth Vader showed up instead of just a generic blare. What if Luke runs into Leia's cell to try to release her and they play the Luke and Leia theme? I mean, that would be really interesting to listen to, but this score is so good, I don't want to touch it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for one thing. That's something that changed for me listening to it this time, because like, before listening to it for this show, I would have said, yeah, let's try it out, let's see what it sounds like, you know. It's not like this score is untouchable, it's got its detractions, and one of them is that it doesn't fit with the rest of the series, so let's play with it. But listening to it now, listening, just really listening to it in depth for maybe the first time, even though I've been listening to it for most of my life, it's so good, I don't want to touch it at all. Plus, there's no way to touch it and retain the sound that Williams had at that point in his career. Even for the special edition where they tracked in Jabba's theme from six years later... Oh, that didn't know. The, the compositional style, the, the recording, the, the use of different sections of the orchestra, it doesn't fit. Yeah, not at all. So, it may theoretically be interesting, but this score is conceived and executed as such a unified, consistent piece of work that you can't touch it. You can't ever touch it. Even tracking in that stuff from Return of the Jedi, it doesn't work at all. No, it didn't work at all. <laughs> I feel about that scene the way I feel about, like, 99% of all deleted scenes. Like, there's a reason this was deleted. Usually, yeah. The movie works better without it. You know what they could have cut out, though? Uh-oh. Whoever the dude was on the right-hand side of the orchestra, 
who spent the entire recording session playing with his fidget clicker? They gotta cut that dude right the fuck out. I wish I had my fidget clicker, but you don't like it when I use it on the podcast. Yeah, you can hear some incidental noises in in the orchestra. That happens in a lot of scores. There are instances where you can hear people turning the pages, or you can hear chairs creaking. I'm pretty sure there's even a score or two where someone in the orchestra, back in the early days of digital watches, didn't know how to shut off their alarms. (laughs) That's awesome. But yeah, there are a couple of places in this score where you can hear, you know, a creak or a pop because of incidental noise in the orchestra. And frankly, it's a testament to the quality of the CD releases that we have that you can hear that kind of thing. I actually, when you mentioned this, went and took a look at the most recent release of this score, which is a high-res remastered release of the original LP, not the special edition arrangement that Disney put out in 2018 when they got the rights to everything in full. And a couple of them are mixed down in that arrangement. So, who knows, there are mastering things you can do for some of that stuff, but if it's not too, too intrusive, I don't think it really detracts from a soundtrack recording. One thing we've mentioned a few times is how this is sort of like the Star Wars franchise 1.0. Like, they're still sort of figuring out the kinks. Right. And like we've mentioned, like, differences between what they did in this score versus the way they scored the later movies, but I think it's really interesting to look at of all of the different themes and motifs that they use in this movie. First of all, just the way that my pedantic mind works, where exactly do you draw the line between a theme and a motif? Oh, God, you're not going to like this answer. And the second thing is that I find it very interesting which of those themes went on to be used in the rest of the Star Wars franchise and which of them were dropped like a hot potato, because I think the demarcation of which ones were dropped and which ones went on are which ones were themes and which ones were motifs. Roughly. The lines of demarcation are different in different contexts. If you want to talk about in terms of the structure of classical compositions, there are different roles that a theme and a motif might play in a classical piece from the classical music period. But in the context of modern music, and especially in the context of film music, it's not that great of a distinction. In common parlance, colloquially, the distinction, which is soft and gray, is mostly about the length of the melodic piece that's identifiable as the theme or motif. So the Death Star stinger, I would say, is definitely a motif because it's just four notes. It it doesn't get much of a longer arrangement, whereas the long-lined melodies... Leia's theme and and Ben's theme and and Luke's themes are absolutely themes because those melodic lines are so much longer. But there isn't an exact mathematical distinction. I can't tell you if it's two bars, then it's a motif, and if it's longer, it's a theme. That distinction doesn't exist. So what would you call the Imperial theme in this movie? And what would you call the Rebel fanfare? I think it would be fair to call them either. 
I think what I would call them in a particular context would depend on whether I want to call attention to the difference in the length of the melody versus the main, longer themes of the film. Because I personally found it very interesting that the two very short pieces, the Death Star, Blair, and the Imperial theme, those are the ones that were dropped. And it's the longer melodic themes that were carried over and used in eight more movies. Well, the Rebel fanfare persists, mostly because it's in the end credits. (laughs) For one thing. It persists in the body of the scores of the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy. It's only in the prequels because it's in the end credits. Well, there's a lot of stuff that it makes no sense to put in the prequels, but they put in there anyway because, you know, Star Wars. Yeah, like Luke's themes. Yeah. But we'll get there. (laughs) Oh, apparently. Um, We're starting off on the high note. Don't worry. We will plumb the depths. (laughs) It's a lot, folks. We'll get there. I think it's interesting to note, while we're talking about the Death Star motif, the uh, Imperial theme that was unique to this film, the Imperial theme has had a shocking comeback in the Disney era. Well, yeah, because they keep making all these prequels that are set before New Hope. Right. Even if one of them's just barely under the line. Yeah, like five minutes. (laughs) And so the composers are using these old New Hope themes to sort of set the time as being before New Hope. Both Giacchino and Powell used both the old Imperial theme and the Death Star Blair. Yeah, that's right. But even this movie shows the weakness of those themes. Like, you can argue they weren't dropped because they were short, they were dropped because they just weren't very good. Or they weren't suited for what they wanted to do, because when the Millennium Falcon is captured, and it's snared in the tractor beam, and it's dragged toward the Death Star, and it's brought onto the landing bay, and you see there's just these, like, all these stormtroopers, and there's this space station the size of a moon, and they're trapped. The music that they play for the might and power of the Empire is a bold, militaristic march version of the Rebel Fanfare. It's because the Imperial theme is totally unsuited for that use case. No, it's because of a decision as to what aspect of the story to emphasize in the music. What they're emphasizing in that scene isn't the might and the power of the Empire. What they're emphasizing in that scene is the defiance and the ingenuity of our heroes as they're caught in this inescapable situation and they find a way to hide and sneak aboard the Death Star rather than 
you know, accepting the power and the might of the Empire. That's a storytelling decision. Maybe you can justify it that way. That's not a post-hoc justification! That music is not played in such a way to emphasize their resourcefulness and their sneakiness and their hiding. Because right after that is like a track and a half of them being resourceful and sneaky and hiding. I already referenced that music when I talked about how it contrasted with Luke's theme being played in the middle and sounding impossibly naive and idealistic compared to all the sneaking and hiding and resourcefulness music that it was in the middle of. The rebel fanfare there, as they're being captured, is not being played to emphasize their resourcefulness and their hiding. That theme is being played in a bold, militaristic march to emphasize the might and power of the military that's on the screen at the time. I disagree. Even with some of the music that was written and recorded for the film, there was a decision not to use some of the bleaker things that were written. The alternate binary sunset is rather bleak. The music that was written for the scene with the monster in the trash compactor and the beginning of the uh, trash compactor compacting sequence... There was music written for that whole sequence. A lot of it was not used. A lot of the bleaker, more imperiled music in those sequences was intentionally not used. So they weren't going to do anything dark and desperate and bleak for the earlier sequence. And so they used the rebel fanfare as, as a more heroic element. They used the rebel fanfare because it adapted itself well to being played that way and sounds imposing as fuck when played that way. That too. I really like the Rebel Fanfare. I, I, I think it's an underrated theme. The Rebel Fanfare is one of the themes that I think got a little less variation as time went on, and it got a lot of variation in this first score. That's one thing I noticed. And maybe it's, like I said, maybe it's just something I haven't been paying attention to because I've never really listened to these scores analytically before. But there's a lot of, like, manipulation and variation. and Like, the entire track... T- well, it, it's technically track three, because the fucking 20th Century Fox fanfare is track one, but... Yeah, remember when Star Wars movies had the Fox fanfare? The entire track after the blockade runner, that Imperial attack, when the, when the Imperials board the spaceship and all of the rebel troopers are there... The way that they use the Rebel fanfare throughout that scene is so... Like, I don't remember them using any theme in that particular way throughout the rest of the series. As well as during that first shootout, laid over top of that is like a broken-up version of little phrases of the Imperial theme. Like, it hasn't quite put itself together yet. It's passed between different sections of the orchestra. It's over top on the xylophones, I think. It goes to the horns. Even in that use case, 
at no point in there can you say that that theme really conveys the might and power of the Empire. Um, there's an instance in the final battle that I do think does that a little more compellingly. But, to your point about the length of motifs versus themes, it lasts uh, about a bar. It's not a long and flowing theme. Because I think that, even apart from subjective arguments about does it sound good, I think that's the real advantage that the Imperial March from Empire has over this Imperial theme in New Hope, is you play that theme and it conveys the might and power of the Empire and the dread threat posed by Darth Vader. I think conveying those ideas would be very, very, very difficult using this New Hope Imperial theme. Well, that's one reason it got rewritten and replaced. Yeah. While we're talking about that initial action sequence at the beginning of the movie, I think that's a very good example of some of the temp tracking that's evident in this score. Speaking of things that happened elsewhere in the multiverse of madness, there was an idea originally on George Lucas's part to score the movie with classical selections like 2001, when the tone and the feel of this movie is nothing like 2001, but... Yeah, but if, everyone was trying to be 2001. But you then. think you think of science fiction in this time, and, and that's the first thing that comes to mind, sure. And so, in addition to classical pieces, uh, you know, Stravinsky survives in the uh, Tatooine sequence right after 3PO and, and R2 land. There's a segment in there that is very reminiscent of a, of a Stravinsky piece. Yeah, there's a lot of places where if you go back and listen to the Williams track and compare it to the classical piece that had been, like, temp-tracked in there, it's very, very similar. Some of the Jawa music you mentioned, the Dvorak New World Symphony compared to the Throne Room March, very, very similar feel.
Eternidot. Oh, you know what else is interesting? Do you know what's in the New World Symphony immediately before the part that directly inspired the Throne Room March? Oh. That doesn't remind you of another Williams theme? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Now that you remind me, yes, of course. That's why this movie is sort of in much the same way that I use King Arthur Legend of the Sword to bludgeon other scores over the head. Like, even if you're going to make a thematic, amelodic drek, you can at least make something interesting, like King Arthur Legend of the Sword. There's no reason why a thematic, amelodic drek has to suck. Just look at King Arthur Legend of the Sword. I can't believe we are still talking about King Arthur Legend of the Sword. Star Wars A New Hope can be used in the exact same way, because just because everything is temp-tracked to hell, and composers have no freedom to vary from the director's preconceived notion, doesn't mean the score has to suck, because Star Wars was temp-tracked to hell, and John Williams didn't vary very far from the director's preconceived notions. I just think it's interesting that that's something else that sets the score apart from anything else in the franchise, obviously, because the entire rest of the franchise is temp-tracked with this. Yeah. <laughs> Even in addition to some of the classical selections, people talk about some Erich Wolfgang Korngold scores in terms of the main theme. And the Rebel fanfare, especially at the beginning of the film during the Imperial Attack, sounds just like the main theme from The Vikings by Mario Nassimbene. Which I never realized until recently when someone put out a re-recording of it, but it sounds just spot on to me. I have me. never heard that. You know the beginning, like the slow version of the Rebel Fanfare, right at the beginning of that track, right? Yeah. Influences. Yes. But just because somebody is drowning in influences doesn't mean the output has to suck. Exactly. And that's why Star Wars A New Hope is yet another cudgel I can use to beat other scores over the head with. Oh, and isn't your life better for getting more of those?
I have to say, though, I, I heard somebody compare the Star Wars main title to the main theme of King's Row by Eric Korngold. Yeah. And damn, I really like the main theme to King's Row by Eric Korngold. That's a good piece of music. Wow, can we get you into some 1940s music? That'd oh, be interesting. I, I I am a big fan of the main theme to King's Row by Eric Korngold. I, I seriously, no no sarcasm whatsoever. I really like that theme. and 40s classics of cinema? I need to get you listening to, to Korngold and Al Newman and all the greats. Well, we should do our next show. Yeah, well, yeah we'll do the Best. Oscar scores from 1938. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do Robin Hood and the 72 other things that were nominated that year. We haven't talked much about Princess Leia's theme. Okay. And that's because it's so... Beautiful? I guess? I don't think it's used very well in this movie. I mean, it's used a couple of times, just like, there's Princess Leia, we'll play her theme, and that's fine. But, like, all the other themes really get their moment to shine. Like, Luke's theme gets its moments where it's just, like, big and bold and declarative. And the Rebel fanfare gets its moments where it's signifying the might and power of the Empire. And it's just really big and bold and declarative. And Ben's theme in the battle is just, you know, big and in your face. And Leia's theme never really gets that presentation. We don't really get a big, bold, heroic version of Leia's theme until, like, fucking The Last Jedi. This is what I wrote down in my notes to remember, to, to, like, spark my thoughts. The thing that I wrote down was Leia's theme is trying to just be, like, ethereal and beautiful, but I really want it to be energetic and powerful. And it occurs to me that that exact same criticism can be applied to many female characters and not just their musical undertones. I was going to say, thinking of her role in the story and her role in the movie, I mean, if you want to find other places to put her theme, maybe you could have done something at the destruction of Alderaan, some sort of desperation or or, or dramatic use there, but, uh, I mean, she's... Like, even later in the trilogy, it doesn't really get showcased. As she becomes more of one of the action heroes rather than just the damsel in distress, her theme still doesn't really get that presentation. It's the rebel fanfare. It's the Han and Leia love theme. So, like, her theme never really gets that sort of showcase. That's fair. A little a little less than some of the other themes, sure. Also, Leia's theme in the end credits is used so little. Like, there's so little of it in there, and it's just, like, one brief thing. The use of Leia's theme with the Rebel fanfare and Counterpoint, though, is genius. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but of all of the themes that they add into the end credits, Leia's theme is used by far the least out of any of the eight movies. Sure, it's it's probably a somewhat shorter end credits, that's fair. As we're kind of drawing to a close on Star Wars here, I think we should mention that in contrast to the warm, traditional, romantic, orchestral, purely orchestral scoring, we also have the cantina band cues, which stand in contrast to all of that. In what way? In the instrumentation, in the style. I mean, it's basically Benny Goodman, you know, 1930s swing, rather than 19th century romanticism. But it's also something that sounds very familiar. Like, people watching this movie are very familiar with Benny Goodman big band music. It's not something that's going to sound alien to them. It's like, oh yes, this sounds like something I would hear in a Hepcat bar. The arrangement is... The arrangement on synthesizers and kettle drums and all of the weird percussion instruments that they got in for those two cues, that gives it a much more alien sound, even while it has that swing style that is familiar. I wouldn't call the sound alien. I never felt that way. Well, because Star Wars was never alien to you. We were raised on it. I did wonder if the London Symphony Orchestra already had a kettle drum section or if they had to bring in a specialist. Possibly they had to expand the uh, uh, oeuvre a little bit. I know they used instruments that are like different than the orchestra that they score the rest of the movie with, but I mean, it's not like they're using weird oddball things. It's not like they have a theremin section and a banging on hubcaps section. It's all just like regular instruments. If you've been hearing 19th century romantic classical music for 45 minutes and suddenly you have Benny Goodman being played on kettle drums, I would say that's a drastic shift. I suppose, but it's also, it's like music in that bar, not score music. So it doesn't feel out of place. No, no, I'm not saying it's out of place. It's just that kind of drastic shift and the one element of the musical face of the movie that I think does kind of lean into that intentionally alienating mood. I would not call it alienating. I mean, if you're saying it's noticeably different than the orchestral score, then yes, it is, but I wouldn't call it alienating or unfamiliar at all. Interesting. I mean, it sounds like Big band, swing, jazzy kind of music. It doesn't sound out of place in that milieu at all. Well, if you're thinking purely about the notes being played, but the instrumentation, I think, moves it away from that drastically. While not moving it away entirely. What are you saying? A steel drum is an alien instrument? If it comes in suddenly, like it does in the the movie, I think that's an intentional effect. I did not hear it that way. My primary response to the Cantina Band tracks are, I'm glad these weren't edited out in favor of a music video. Uh, Well, that's true. That'll do it for our discussion of the very first Star Wars score. Join us after this as we launch into the sequel, The Empire Strikes Back. We will be back after this.
promotional consideration paid for by the following. Place Your Nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have over two dozen podcasts available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceFeedNation.com. We now offer them to you on two great feeds. The PlaceFeedNation Wrestling feed, we dive into topics running the gamut from today's WWE to the glory days of yesteryear and the ins and outs of the territory days. In addition to our full-length shows, we also deliver to you special pod blasts on topics old and new. The Place to Be Nation pop feed is a veritable treasure trove of great content. Offer tremendous shows covering the land of movies, television, life, comics, and sports. Brought to you by the most knowledgeable and insightful folks in the podcast world. You can find all of these current shows, plus archives of our previous podcasts from over the past eight years as well, by subscribing to our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows, plus others available at PlaceMation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using www.placetobination.com forward slash Amazon while doing your online shopping. And be sure to join us at our forum at Bigelow34.proboards.com for all sorts of wrestling, sports, and pop culture discussion each and every day where you can make your voice heard. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar, ProWrestlingOnly.com, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceTobation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Welcome back. We are continuing our journey through the scores of the Star Wars saga with The Empire Strikes Back. Scott, is The Empire Strikes Back a great score or the greatest score? I didn't like it. Never let it be said that we don't have hot takes on the podcast. That's my hot take. My hot take on Star Wars is that it was really good. My hot take on Empire is that not that good. Seriously? Basically, the entire first disc of this score is unfocused. It just sort of meanders. It doesn't have a clear theme running through it. None of the tracks have a clear theme running through them, except, like, one track with the love theme, and I guess the asteroid field is on disc one, but all of the Hoth material was shockingly bad. Like, not, like, terrible bad, but shockingly bad, considering it was from The Empire Strikes Back! Yes, the, the <laughs> if this wasn't a John Williams score from The Empire Strikes Back, I would call it a meandering mess. Wow. If that was, like, a random score that got nominated for an Oscar that we had to review for the Oscar preview by some composer that you knew a lot about and I had never heard of, I would listen to that Hoff material and I would call it a meandering mess. If that was by a composer that you hadn't heard before, you would listen to The Battle in the Snow, and The Asteroid Field, and Han Solo and the Princess, and your reaction would be, meh. My reaction would be, 
why do these tracks have a clear focus and theme that they're built around, and the first three or five tracks are just a meandering mess? All of that Hoth material, it's just... I mean, you could say some of it is because of the movie it was built around, but I don't usually cut that sort of slack. I mean, if you look at the opening of Star Wars, it just smacks you in the face. That fanfare, I mean, accepting the theme, because the theme is the theme, but then the the Star Destroyer music and that fanfare blare right at the beginning, and then the next track with the Imperial attack on the cruiser, that whole track is built around the Rebel fanfare. Every piece of that track, the background incidental music, is the Rebel fanfare. The, the big blaring music when the troopers assemble, it's the rebel fanfare. And then it transitions into some Imperial stuff when the Imperials get there. But that whole track has a focus. That whole track has a structure it's built around. That whole track, it's cohesive. It holds together. It makes sense. All of this Hoth material is just meandering nothingness. And, oh, here's a brief portion of Luke's theme. And then here's some more meandering nothingness. and. Here's a brief portion of the love theme that we haven't even introduced yet, but we're still only going to play a brief portion of it, and then we're going to meander around some more. And here's a brand new droid theme that doesn't even sound like it fits in the same universe, and then we're going to meander around some more. And then here's like a quarter of the Force theme, and then we're going to meander around some more. Some of the Walker material is okay, but it's just... Basically, all of the Hoth music is a loss as far as I'm concerned. The takes just keep getting hotter. Wow, okay. <laughs> um, All of the Hoth music is a loss. All of the training montage tracks with Yoda and Luke are just kind of meh. Okay, okay, okay. Let's, let's, let's start from the beginning. The centerpiece of this score, the main theme of this score, the new Imperial March, is everywhere in this score. It's in this score like 45 times. I know it's in the movie everywhere. It surprisingly didn't feel that omnipresent listening to the score as it feels watching the movie. I don't know if maybe I just got used to hearing it, but it feels more omnipresent watching the movie than it felt listening to the score. I mean, it's awesome. And if you want to hear my hot take on the Imperial March, I have that. Or if you want to stay on my previous hot take before we move on. Oh my, oh my god. I have to know now. What's your hot take on the Imperial March? We talked in the section on Star Wars about how it was temp-tracked to hell. And you could basically still see the remnants of the temp-tracking in large parts of the finished product. Like, if you look at the Throne Room March at the end and compare it to the New World Symphony, you can see they're, they're very similarly shaped. Even though it's a very different tune... You can see the same sort of shape of the music. They feel very similar, even though if you were to analyze them note by note, I imagine they'd be nothing alike. If you compare the Imperial March as it is in Empire, specifically the feature track of the Imperial March, and compare that to the music that was used in A New Hope to project the might and power of the Empire, which was sort of a militaristic march version of the Rebel fanfare, again, those two tracks feel very similar to me. They have like a very similar shape. 
Like, specifically, the scene where they capture the Millennium Falcon and bring it on board the Death Star, and they play that really bold, militaristic march version of the Rebel fanfare, because the Imperial theme they were using in New Hope really wouldn't have fit that scene. And so they used that militaristic march version of the Rebel fanfare. If you compare that with the Imperial March and Empire, they feel very similar to me. You can see the same shape in both of those tracks. They have, like, very similar build-ups to the theme... The theme itself has like a similar shape and feel to it, except at the very end where the Imperial March dips down and then up, the Rebel fanfare goes up and then down. Even the transition out of the Rebel fanfare at the end of that scene is almost the same as the transition in the middle of the Imperial March track. The way it sounded to me is like if you look at the throne room scene that was temp-tracked with New World Symphony and eventually scored with the throne room march, and you compare those tracks and their similarities, if you imagine that militaristic march version of the Rebel fanfare as sort of the temp-track version compared to the eventual product of the Imperial March, I think they have a very similar relationship. That struck me very distinctly listening to it this time. You know what struck me listening to Empire this time? After our discussion on Star Wars, and we were talking about that first Imperial theme so much, I'm hearing it everywhere now. Like, not the actual theme itself, but components of it, like the DNA of it. Yeah, there were a lot of parts where I noticed, I wasn't sure if they were doing it intentionally, or if it was just, like, a rhythmic thing, where they're just, like, they're using a rhythm that sounds like the Imperial theme from New Hope, because the Imperial theme from New Hope was, like, 80% the rhythm, and only about 20% the melody. Well, the melody starts with the same note repeated three times, just like Darth Vader's theme does. And the uh, tremolo part at the tail end of, of the original Imperial theme is in several places in The Empire Strikes Back. It's in Cloud City a few times. What really jumped out at me was there was sort of a theme-ish or a motif for the walkers during the Battle on Hoth that sounded to me a lot like the New Hope Imperial theme.
Snow has that sort of tremulo aspect that I'm thinking of from Cloud City as well, which, again, if you want to read into it that way, is part of the DNA of it. But let's get back to the Imperial March itself and the role that it plays in the movie, given the expanded and more powerful role that Darth Vader has in the story. He plays a much bigger role than he did in the previous movie, and so he needed a theme that was, I don't want to say more identifiable, because I find all of them very identifiable, but I'm me. But he needed a theme that was more iconic. And if there's something that the Imperial March is, and something that it's certainly become in the last 40 years, it is iconic and powerful. That's where I would go. Much like the point that I made when they had to resort to using the Rebel fanfare during the scene where they captured the Millennium Falcon, the Imperial theme from New Hope doesn't really lend itself to being imposing and powerful and threatening and menacing. It's not really the theme for an overwhelming force. It's just the theme for the baddie. It sounds sinister, but it doesn't sound like it's going to just obliterate the fuck out of you, the way that the Empire is being portrayed in Empire. And that's exactly what it needed for the story in Empire, because the story in Empire basically is that they're obliterating everybody. Exactly. But part of the iconic nature and the power of that theme is that it's identifiable in the short bursts. You can use it as the longer theme, obviously, but you can use it in a, in a fanfare form to announce Vader, like when he's announced on Cloud City. You can use it in a very, very short form, and it still retains its power. Well, that's... you're just defining a theme, really. I mean, that's the point of all of these themes, is that you can use small snippets of them and it's still identifiable. There are some themes that I think are more malleable than others. Like, the love theme that's introduced in this movie doesn't work as well in a fanfare. You know, you, you can't do that in ten seconds the way you can do Darth Vader in ten seconds. I think you can. I mean, you play those that first six notes of the love theme, that's identifiable. You know what that is once you've heard the theme. And you can cut off the first two if you're in a pinch. That's four notes. You can play four notes. That, that's almost my criticism of the Hoth piece. <laughs> Is that they don't use any of these themes in their full length, and they don't feature them and repeat them. They just, like, drop snippets of them here and there, with no real rhyme or reason, except I guess there was someone on screen at the time. But, I mean, what you're defining is the utility of any theme, is that you can easily recognize it. The purpose of the score in that opening sequence of the movie, basically up to Luke being captured by the Wampa, I suppose, is to reintroduce you to all the characters and reintroduce you to the returning themes and introduce the new themes. And so that's done in a very A to B way, 
where, you know, you see a character being reintroduced to the audience and their theme is reintroduced at the same time. Or for the ones who have new themes, their themes are introduced in relatively uncomplicated arrangements for, you know, Luke's theme and Leia's theme and the love theme, as opposed to doing something a little more abstract, which the score does a little later on, and which you'll be complaining about in a few minutes, I'm sure. I believe I said earlier, maybe the score is fractured and meandering and aimless because of the film that it's underscoring, but listening to it, it's an aimless, meandering mess with tiny snippets of themes tossed in seemingly at random. It is nothing that could possibly be described as a cohesive listening experience. disagree entirely. It's not fractured, it's linear. There is nothing linear about it. You know, I thought when we were doing this that we'd have nothing to talk about, because we've been listening to these scores for 40 years, and what new are we going to have to say about them? And yet here I find myself surprised by how good the Star Wars score is, and how not good the Empire score is for the first three quarters. It's kind of an amazing revelation to me. I don't know where to go here. <laughs> One thing we could note is how much of this movie didn't have a score. Like, a lot of the big, pivotal moments in the movie, especially toward the end, the whole first part of the fight between Luke and Darth Vader is largely unscored, and the music for the revelation of Vader as Luke's father is a very understated piece of music compared to the melodrama going on on screen and Vader proclaiming things and Luke screaming at him. The music under that scene is very, very restrained and understated. Well, as for the first part of the duel, Williams scored the movie pretty much wall to wall, and then whichever scenes turned out not to need music didn't get it. So... You know, he gave them options, and then they just kind of dropped it away wherever it felt appropriate. And mixed and matched some pieces. Luke's rescue on Hoth before the battle is tracked in with the jump to hyperspace from the end of the movie, replacing the cue that Williams originally wrote for that scene. The revelation at the end that Vader is, is Luke's father is scored somewhat sparingly. Thank you. 
there's a um, a very ominous version of Vader's theme that comes in right after he tells him, but there are some very sparse strings under the actual dialogue leading up to that. It's an interesting choice to kind of lay back there and let the dialogue carry more of the melodrama than the music in that particular moment. When the music is more than happy to carry all the melodrama it can in just about every other moment. <laughs> well, I mean, when you've got James Earl Jones doing Darth Vader's voice, and then whatever effect they did on Luke's voice to get that, like, big echo thing that he has in that scene. <laughs> I mean... That seed in my head is still this big, bombastic thing, even though listening to the score on the CD, it's, like, practically nothing. It's not practically nothing, it's just somewhat more restrained than the music surrounding it. By comparison, I suppose. None of that scene is being carried by the music. Like, there are scenes that are carried by the music. There are scenes that depend on the music to either enhance them or influence the audience in the way they're supposed to be feeling. Clash of the Lightsabers is not the same scene without that music. Right. The Escape from the Cloud City Landing Pad is not the same scene without that big, full-throated rendition of the love theme. The Revelation scene does not depend on the music in that way. It's not being carried, no. No, that that is one instance where Williams understood that he didn't need to carry it. Everyone else was doing, oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> there's a version of that scene where Vader goes, I am your father. And there's like a big, like, crashing fanfare of doing like... <laughs> and it's not a better version of the scene. I mean, that's parodic, right? <laughs> That's the Mad Magazine version of that scene. One thing that I, I think I sort of knew before, but it's like something I never really thought about explicitly, other than the Imperial March just being all over the place because the Empire is just all over the place, the theme that really carries this movie is that Han and Leia love theme. I wanted to move into that next because it's the next most important theme introduced in this movie. The way that, like, when you think of New Hope, you think of the main title and Luke's theme, and you think of the Binary Sunset, Ben's theme, but when you really listen to the score, the thing that carries that movie is the Rebel fanfare. The theme, other than the Imperial March being all over the place, because the Empire is all over the place, the theme that carries this score is that love theme. If you would ask me and I thought about it for a minute, I probably would have recognized that before, but it's something that I never really thought of in those terms until this listen. Consciously, yeah. 
because not to the extent of the Imperial March, obviously, but it is also all over the movie. In terms of composition, it's very, very close to Leia's theme. The structure of the beginning of the theme is very, very similar. The sorts of uh, intervals and chord progressions that it's using. And yet, at the same time, it sounds so very, very different. Well, it develops much differently. Leia's theme never sounds as sweeping or as powerful as the love theme is played at points in this movie. I mean, that was my criticism of Leia's theme when we were talking about New Hope. Right, and especially during the Cloud City escape, when the love theme gets some very powerfully orchestrated versions that Leia's theme never got. One thing I find interesting about the love theme in Empire is that it never really is completed. In every appearance, it's cut off by something. It's either cut off or it trails off because the love between the characters keeps getting cut off or in some way not consummated. That's probably not the word I want to use. (laughs) In the same way that the relationship between the characters kind of develops in fits and starts... They're getting close together, but something happens and interrupts them. They're getting closer together, but C-3PO bursts into the room. They keep getting cut off, and so the theme never really reaches a conclusion. That's what makes the concert version of the love theme so interesting, I think, because it starts with the cue uh, Han Solo and the princess when they're in the Falcon before C-3PO interrupts them, but then in the concert version it develops into Leia's theme and then a final statement of the love theme that really kind of brings the whole thing around to a satisfying conclusion that it's never allowed to reach in the film. on how you define conclusion. Even at the end of the movie, the grand sweeping statement of the love theme over the shot of the Rebel fleet is interrupted by the end titles. Yeah, but I mean, like, when they escape Cloud City, it has an ending. The version in the carbon freeze scene has an ending. No, that's cut off by fanfares and Darth Vader's theme. Well, it transitions into fanfares and then later Darth Vader's theme. 
And it sort of has an ending in the end credits where it transitions into... It completes the theme and then transitions into the, like, fanfare-ish ending of the end credits sequence. I don't think that feels like it really gets completed before that final fanfare in the credits. I mean, it feels like it's missing a note that transitions into a fanfare. Well, it's it's all it's always just a little bit unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. Unfulfilled. That's the word I meant to come up with when I said consummated. <laughs> they are related concepts. Uh, but I don't think it is ever quite fulfilled, and I think that's a very interesting storytelling choice. Let's move on to the other major new theme introduced in this movie, Yoda's theme. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about the droid theme. No, that'll be the subject of a whole other hour-long podcast. Okay. Yoda's theme, when it's first introduced, is very playful, a little childlike, which is appropriate for a Muppet. But as they give the Muppet a little more dramatic heft, a little more gravitas, the theme kind of transitions as well and gains more gravitas with him. You know the distinction I made? What's the distinction you made? Uh, Is it a meandering mess? (laughs) Well. Because there are tracks with more than one theme in them, so... They do introduce Yoda's theme, and in that very same track, before the track is even over, they've gone back to dropping bits and pieces of it here and there, rather than playing the theme through so that the audience can recognize what the hell it is and have it in their heads for later when they drop pieces of it. But the distinction I made is the comment that you made about Giacchino's Spider-Man theme. That it's orchestrated in this scene to be the theme of an angsty high schooler, and it's orchestrated in this other scene to be the theme of a superhero. Okay. Yoda's theme, when it's first introduced, is the sort of plucky strings, angsty high schooler version of Yoda's theme. want to picture Yoda as an angsty high schooler? Oh lord. Yoda as an angsty high schooler? My father, you are not! Like me, you think she does? Oh my god. 
And then later, like, when he levitates the X-Wing, the theme gets more in the superhero type of orchestration. And then when it gets, like, the action version later in Cloud City, it has a lot more body to it. It has a lot more oomph to it in those orchestrations than it does when it's initially introduced. As the character does, the character's initially introduced as like a weird imp, and then you discover, oh no, he's a 900-year-old Jedi Master who's like more powerful than everyone we've ever seen. Yeah, he's a 900-year-old Jedi Master who was trying to steal my crackers yesterday. (laughs) That middle portion of the score, whenever they cut back to Luke training on Dagobah, has a really interesting sort of interplay between Yoda's theme as it's becoming more mystical and gaining more of that heft, and Obi-Wan's theme, which is in that sequence, I think, becoming the Force theme. I think it's in the middle of Empire when it becomes the Force theme. Because it appears for Ben Kenobi's Force Ghost at the beginning of the movie, specifically for him. But then, over the course of the middle of the film, as Luke is training and Yoda is instructing him in the ways of the Force, Yoda's theme and now the Force theme and some interesting downbeat variations on Luke's theme have this really interesting interplay. What did you make of that whole sequence? I mean, I think you described pretty much the way these tracks are sort of built. But for me, as a listening experience, none of them really grabbed me. They were all sort of meh. I mean, they had moments, but none of them really felt like a cohesive thing. Is that, do you think, more because of the mood and the instrumentation, or just the, uh, I don't know, did those themes not go together for you? Like, I'm wondering where that disconnect is. I think what I'm really craving in a lot of these tracks is a consistent through line that is, like, the focus that the track is built around. And for a lot of these training scenes, they don't really have that. 
They have a bit of Yoda's theme for the instruction. They have a bit of the Force theme when Luke is levitating things. They have like a bit of Luke's theme when he sits down and is all sad because he doesn't think he can do it. But they don't really have like a consistent focus that goes through the entire track. Not in the way that like the asteroid field does. Not in the way that Han Solo and the Princess does. See, I see the interplay and the sort of coming and going of those three themes kind of weaving through each other as the through line of that whole sequence. Yeah, it sort of is. I mean, that's what they're doing in those tracks, but it just doesn't... There's nothing there that focuses my attention, you know, that says, okay, this is what this track is about. And there's variations on it, and there's other things that play off of it, but at the center, this is what the track is focusing on. Those tracks don't really have that central focus. I mean, the central focus is what's going on in the movie. And so as I'm listening to the track on a CD, it just doesn't really work because that scaffolding is missing. Whereas in a track like the Asteroid Field, the scaffolding is in the music itself. Well... Since you've mentioned the asteroid field a couple of times, let's move on to some of the kind of one-off set pieces of this score, which is a hallmark of Star Wars scores and a hallmark of John Williams during this period, which, as a person with pretty severe anxiety and self-esteem issues, I don't know how you compose something like the asteroid field and then decide, nah, I'm not using that again. The bit of the asteroid field sequence that everyone remembers and everyone knows is that kind of broad theme that is used a couple of times during the queue, and only a couple of times. For how much it features in my memory, I was surprised at how little it was actually in the track. Yeah, it's just in a couple of bursts. But in those couple of bursts, it's become lodged in everyone's memory. Oh yeah, because it's great. And that's the sort of thing that Williams could do and then just leave on the table, not coming back to that one. Well, I mean, TIE Fighter Attack in the first one is similar. Exactly. This is a hallmark of Williams. It's especially a hallmark of the Star Wars scores. They all have these sequences that are bold and iconic in their picture that are just one-off set pieces. It's amazing. The escape from the Minoc cave, I, I think, is very yeah. similar.
that one is built off of the Rebel fanfare a little more. There are a few surprisingly abstract, like almost deconstructions of the Rebel fanfare in this movie. And some of that forms the basis of the escape from the Minot Cave. But, again, the main melodic thrust of that sequence is another standalone set piece. That's interesting, because one of the comments I would make is that I was surprised at how little the Rebel fanfare is in this movie, given how prominently it featured in the Star Wars score. In terms of more straightforward arrangements, very few. And even some of the more abstract, deconstructed ones, there are only a couple that I recall. One during the Hoth battle, that I, I believe, and then part of the lead-in to that Minoc escape. I did notice the one, I don't know if it was in the battle, I think it was in an earlier track. The first time I remember hearing the Rebel fanfare in the score, my comment on hearing it was like, wow, the Rebel fanfare sounds like twisted and warped. There are a couple of those, like, very different variations. I don't think I noticed many others. Just a couple. But I think it's it's very interesting to get that with a theme that, as you say, was so much of the basis of so many pieces in the previous movie. I mean, the Rebel fanfare has always been one of my favorite of the Star Wars themes. I think it's probably the most underrated of the Star Wars themes, considering it's the basis of the first track after the main title, and it's the basis of TIE Fighter Attack, and it's used a lot in the Battle of Yavin, and it's... I mean, we'll get there eventually, but the big track in the beginning of Jedi, the Sail Barge Assault, is largely a Rebel fanfare suite. There's... More of it in Jedi, and in the sequel trilogy as well. Surprising amount of it in the sequel trilogy, considering they're supposedly not the Rebels anymore. Well, that kind of goes back to the original Star Wars LP, where Williams called it the Rebel Spaceship Fanfare. And so if you want to generalize it to Rebel Spaceships, or particularize it to the Falcon... Well, that's another show. <laughs> Did you ever listen to the concert suite for the Asteroid Field? I probably heard it somewhere along the line, but I don't remember anything particular about it. Uh, it gets extended a little too much for my taste, although that may be me just being used to the film version from hearing that over and over again, as happens with some of these things. Like, I am not a fan of the Throne Room concert suite either. Well, my memory is the Throne Room concert suite basically just repeats itself. Yeah, it just stops and then starts again. I uh, mean, that's fine with me. My main criticism of the Throne Room concert suite is the version I heard is, like, ever so slightly slower in tempo than the movie version. I don't know if that's the way the concert suite is written or if that's just the performance that I heard, but... You know me, I don't like a slower tempo on these things. Yeah, I know. Oh, oh, yeah, did you listen to the asteroid field at one and a half speed? No, I did. <laughs> oh, God. I did listen to Yoda's theme at one and a half speed. Uh-huh. Because the Yoda's theme track, and this is something else we can get into, but the Yoda's theme track on here is kind of low energy. Like, it's not super slow, but it's pretty slow. And so I did try playing it at one and a quarter speed, and it gives it more pep, but, you know. 
The thing that gets me, and I've noticed this in a couple of different scores, and this is also true in the sequel trilogy, because we've discussed that before, is that when these themes get reused as part of the end credits suite, because they're coming out of that version of the main title, in that end credits suite, you sort of have to play them more up-tempo. You have to play them with more oomph, with more energy, with more verve. And that's why the version of Yoda's theme in the end credits is way better than the version of Yoda's theme in the Yoda's theme suite. That's why the version of Rey's theme in the end credits to The Force Awakens is better than the version of Rey's theme in the track called Rey's theme. Because coming out of that version of the main title, you have to play these things with more verve, with more tempo, with more energy. Well, I've harped on the virtues of a specifically composed end credits suite before, so I shall not again, but I'll, I'll just say this is one of its virtues. Because we'll see in the Return of the Jedi and the prequel end credits suites are just the concert suites edited, and in some cases not edited. I want to go back to what you were saying about the mood and the tempo of the Yoda's theme concert suite. And I think that contrasts with the Force theme in the way that the character of Yoda in Empire and the character of Obi-Wan in the previous film are contrasted in terms of their roles in the story. Ben's theme, the Force theme, is very mythic, often in a very epic way because Ben represents that sort of mythic role as the mentor and the person who draws Luke into the larger world. And then when it transitions and becomes the Force theme, it represents the sort of mythic side of the story in that sense. Yoda, meanwhile, after he's done trying to steal Luke's crackers is more peaceful and more almost meditative. I see what you mean about calling it peaceful. It is very sort of like calm and peaceful and beautiful, but the thing is I've heard that theme as an action cue during Cloud City, and I've heard that theme played with the same sort of up energy as the main title during the end credits suite. And so hearing the calm and peaceful and beautiful version... It doesn't sound calm and peaceful to me. It just sounds sort of slow and limp. I think the distinction that I'm looking for is between the mystical and the mythic. Okay, yeah. That is what I think that concert suite is really conveying. And then the other variations of it, the more impish version when he first meets Luke and the more action-oriented version later on in Cloud City represent different aspects of the theme and different roles that the character plays in different times. But the aspect that Williams concentrates on in that concert suite is the aspect that he fulfills during that long sequence in the middle of the movie as the more mystical wise man. That's all well and good, but you know me and you know my tastes. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know the single best track that I've heard out of this entire thing so far? Sock it to me. Throne room end title. I mean, it's pretty tremendous. I'm not going to argue against it. I, I just want to listen to that thing again and again. <laughs> and if you had asked me two weeks ago, I would have said, well, you know, the best end credits suite is from Empire. 
where you have the Force theme, and then the Love theme, and then the Main theme, and then Yoda's theme, and then the Imperial theme, and then the Love theme. That's the best end credit suite in the entire saga. But damn, I would rather listen to Throne Room end title on a loop. I don't know, it keeps switching from theme to theme. Yes, but it plays each one for more than two seconds, so... I suppose I would still prefer the Empire credits, but it's not a competition, is it? Not yet, that episode's coming up. Yeah, that's another show. I would liken it to the sense of awe and wonder that one would feel the first time they sit down in a theater and see Star Wars. That's basically how I felt sitting down to do this and really listening to the New Hope soundtrack for the first time in a while. Like, not just like plucking a track, because I remember liking it and putting it on in the background, but really listening and just putting on that main title and just boom. Oh man, that was it was like a revelation. Like, holy shit, this is so good. This thing that I've been listening to for literally practically as long as I've been alive. Holy shit, it's so good. And I don't get that from calm, peaceful, ethereal Yoda's theme. I don't get that from beautiful, willowy Leia's theme. I get that from a brass section bomb going off in my ears. As we prepare to wrap up Empire here, got any hot takes on the droid theme? The droid theme, in one track, very early in the score... They use the droid theme, they play it slightly differently, it doesn't sound as, like, playful and impish. It was when Luke was lost on Hoth, and they play the droid theme, it's sort of a mournful, worried version. It's really interesting to see the theme used that way, because in its original rendition, it's just so cheery and fun. hear it used in this very different way was very interesting and then throughout the entire rest of the score they never do that again every single other time they play it regardless of the mood of the film regardless of what scene it's in it's always the peppy cheerful funny comedy version of the droid theme they never again play it in any other version because for the rest of the film c-3po is the comic relief but i mean they play it in, like, dramatic scenes. They play it when Chewie is reconstructing C-3PO while they're in prison. And Han is off being tortured, and they're all in prison, and they're all apprehended by the Empire, and C-3PO is recounting his last memory bank thing of, Oh, wow, I saw stormtroopers. I need to warn people. Oh, no, I've been shot. 
Yeah, because it's funny, because his body's broken up. It's funny body horror. The way they use the droid theme throughout the movie, A, it's no surprise they didn't bring it back. B, it reminded me strongly of Qui-Gon's theme, which is another theme that they used, like, once, and when you listen to it, you think, I understand why they never used this anywhere else, I don't understand how this could ever possibly work in any other scene. And yet, at the same time, one time, very early in the score... They do modulate it. They do play it on a different instrument with a slightly different tempo, with a different mood. It gives you a very different feel. It matches the morose, worried mood of the scene. It's really interesting to hear this theme that's normally this peppy comedy theme played in a way that matches a morose, worried mood. And it makes me kind of frustrated that they never did that again. Like, hearing the droid theme played that way makes me curious of what they could have done with Qui-Gon's theme, maybe. But hearing the droid theme played every other time it appears throughout the movie makes me glad that they just dropped it because it really didn't fit anywhere else they used it throughout the entire movie. You're spoiling future episodes. It's not time to have hot takes about Qui-Gon yet. Fuck Qui-Gon. I'm not sure that's a hot take. (laughs) I think that's a very hot take. Whoa, simmer down there. Alright, I think we're losing the plot here. What else do we have on this? You want to talk about the end of the score? Because as much as I've been criticizing the first, like, three quarters of this thing, the last four tracks of this score are some of the best thing you'll hear anywhere ever. From the Carbon Freeze scene through the end titles. Like, it doesn't get any better than that. It's all classic stuff, to be sure. The Carbon Freezing sequence, Escaping Cloud City, Clash of the Lightsabers... Rescuing Luke from Under the City, Rebel Fleet End Title, that whole sequence, the last four tracks of this sea are like some of the fucking best shit you'll find anywhere ever. The string variation of the Force theme when Luke is hanging under Cloud City and calling to Leia might be my single favorite orchestration of that theme in the whole series. I mean, I know there's Binary Sunset, there's Burning Homestead, there's Light of the Forest, there's there's all these things, but that desperate, almost moaning variation in the Cloud City sequence is just amazing. Just from the way they play that, you can, like, feel the desperation, you can feel the yearning yes. in the moment. And also the mysticism of it, as she starts to hear him. And that's also another sort of one-off theme, that the motif that they use when they turn around and go back after him, and then after they rescue him when they have to escape from the Star Destroyers again.
yeah, the hyperspace sequence with its cutting back and forth between extremely, almost sedate variations of Darth Vader's theme because he's mm-hmm. so calm and in control and these kind of madcap, desperate, thrusting strings for uh, the Millennium Falcon trying to escape. The rhythmic undertone to that whole sequence, very, very similar to the same thing in the forest battle. There's a bit of that type of ostinato, yeah. But yeah, anyway, that would be my advice to anyone that wants to listen to this score. Listen to the Imperial March, and then the last four tracks, and the rest of it you can skip. On one of the uh, film score message boards, there's a thread for people whittling down score releases to what they consider the very best bits of each, especially some of these longer expanded editions that come on two CDs, uh, two or three, the occasional four. (laughs) Whenever they do the 40th anniversary edition of Die Hard, it'll be 17 discs, I think. They keep finding more stuff. But, man, Darth Vader's theme and the last four tracks of Empire, that is an extreme whittling. I mean, you might want to throw in one of the Cloud City tracks, because that theme is cool, but that theme is never really the focus of an entire track, I don't think. You mean Lando's theme? Whatever you want to call it, Lando's theme, Cloud City theme. I mean, that's a good theme, but I don't think it's an essential listen. I, I would say, yeah, that's the essential part, is... The Imperial March, and the last four tracks. Wow. Well, I'm glad Williams was arranging the uh, uh, album when they released the movie and not you. Or else it, would, it only would have been one LP. You know, he he's too close to the material to judge it fairly. That will wrap up our discussion of The Empire Strikes Back the Score. After this, we will be back to complete the trilogy. Consideration paid for by the following. Be sure to follow all of the contributions to Star Wars Month, but we also have plenty of other great content for you on our two podcast feeds here at Place to Be Nation. The Place to Be Nation pop feed includes The Hard Traveling Fanboys, the longest-running weekly episodic comic podcast in all of Place to Be Nation, featuring the talents of Greg Phillips and Nick Duke. DC4U, an in-depth look at the world of DC Comics with Russell Sellers and Todd Weber. Marvel Age, where Nick Duke, Tim Capel, Russell Sellers, and Todd Weber are going through the history of Marvel Comics. Laugh-In Theater, a live-watch comedy movie podcast hosted by Andy Atherton. 
The Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular, brings you deep thoughts on pop culture and the wider culture from the minds of Glenn Butler and my family and friends. The Great Debate, where Andy Atherton leads a panel of guests through a series of arguments on topics far and wide. This Week in the NFL, where Cowboy and D. Amato take you through recaps and previews of each week of the NFL season. The NBA team, Adam Murray and Andrew Reich, cover the world of hoops from coast to coast. The Year in Pop, a deep dive into pop culture year by year, hosted by Andy Atherton, Scott Criscolo, Dr. G, and our friend Mr. D'Amato. Sunday Groove, a podcast for music lovers, hosted by David Sunday. Looking Forward, Looking Back, pop culture and sports editions, hosted by Andy Atherton and the Cowboy, respectively, plus special topical podcasts and pod blasts as events warrant. The Place to Be Nation wrestling feed includes the Place to Be podcast, the mothership of the Place to Be, where JT Rosero and Scott Criscolo take you chronologically through the history of WWE. PTBN's main event, where Scott Criscolo, Nate Milton, and Steve Willey cover current events in the world of wrestling. Body Press Your Luck, a brand new wrestling game show hosted by JT Rosero and Jordan Duncan, plus monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, and much, much more. Don't forget to check out PlaceToBeNation.com every day. We have new voices and fresh takes bringing you articles on topics in the worlds of sports, wrestling, and pop culture, as well as our mainstays, such as Scott Criscolo and Logan Crossland's college football campus hot takes, and the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, my weekly link roundup covering things I've seen online that make me laugh, make me feel something, sometimes make me think, and I hope they do the same for you, coming to you every Wednesday. And if you're shopping from Amazon, be sure to click on the Amazon banner on the right side of the Place to Be Nation homepage, or use placetobenation.com slash Amazon. And now, back to the show. Now, let's finish off the original trilogy. Hey Scott, does Jedi, in fact, rock? It shouldn't. Yes, in an ideal world. <laughs> and I mean that for a couple of different reasons. Not just because Loptinek was awesome and it should still be in the movie. just because that entire Jedi Rock scene was an abomination for several different reasons which aren't entirely relevant because we're not talking about the movie presentation, we're talking about the music. And so about the music, I will say this. We talked about the Cantina Band in the first Star Wars movie, and you said that that music felt very alien compared to the movie score that we'd been presented with up until that point in the film. Correct. Jedi Rocks is not nearly alien enough. It's just a pop song. The only alien thing about it is that it's not in English. But 
I mean, K-pop is a thing. J-pop is a thing. Eurodance is a thing. German death metal is a thing. Latino music in Spanish is a thing. Just not being in English doesn't make it an alien thing from the outer worlds. Jedi Rocks is just a fucking pop song. It is not nearly alien enough to be played in Jabba's palace in the desert of Tatooine. The thing is, it's not even a bad pop song. If you just listen to it, it's not bad. It's pretty good. It's it's a little rocky. It's it's a decent pop song, but it's just not at all the song that a space alien plays in his Star Wars den. I mean, with the horn parts in it, it almost sounds like '90s ska, like the Cherry Pop and Daddies or something. I mean, if you want my hot take, my hot take on Star Wars was that it was good. My hot take on Empire was that it wasn't as good. My hot take on Jedi is Jedi Rocks is a pretty good song. It's just staggeringly inappropriate for its use case. In addition to, as I said, other issues, other problems with the scene as presented visually, which aren't relevant to our discussion. But that song is staggeringly inappropriate to be the alien entertainment in a wretched hive of scum and villainy in the barren desert of Tatooine. Yeah, I don't think it's a knee-jerk reaction against just any of the special edition changes to say that uh, that was misplaced at best. So we are, of course, talking about the return of the Jedi, the culmination of the original trilogy, the end of the original trilogy, the end of Star Wars for all time at the time. Please tell me you actually liked this one. Yes, of course I liked this one, it's Return of the Jedi. But somehow it didn't feel as, like... I don't know the word to describe it, but there's some ineffable quality that that New Hope score has that none of these others have managed to match. Empire and Jedi just feel like film scores, and they have their good points and their bad points, but there's just something about New Hope that's just... You listen to it, and it's awesome, and it just makes me happy, every note of it. And neither Empire nor Jedi have been able to match that. I mean, in a track here and there, maybe. Like, if I, when I listen to Sail Barge Assault, I can't stop smiling. I love that fucking track. Oh, yes, we'll get there. But there's just something about the New Hope score that I literally just discovered on this listen-through. Because, like I said, when we discussed this topic earlier, I made the comment that, you know, New Hope came first, so it gets points for that, but the others sort of built on it and wound up being better. No, I was totally fucking wrong. Neither of these has been able to touch New Hope. 
and that surprises me. I mean, there's... You can name off the top of your head, like, ten iconic tracks on this Jedi CD. Absolutely. I mean, maybe not entire tracks, because they lumped, like, eight things together in one track. Uh, that, that depends on which edition you're listening to. But you can name ten cuts off this Jedi CD that are just iconic. Into the Trap, the Forest Battle, the Final Duel, Darth Vader's Death, the Sail Barge Assault, the Jabba Music, Lopton Neck, Yub Nub. You could just rattle them off one after the other of iconic, incredible cuts off this Jedi CD. And somehow it just still doesn't measure up to New Hope for me. That is interesting. Even with all of the added themes and the developments of themes, or is it for you because it's less unified because there are more elements being thrown around. I think that might be part of it. I theorize that was part of it. When you keep adding in more themes, each one gets less time. I mean, we talked about it. New Hope is basically driven by that rebel fanfare. It's rebel fanfare all over the place with Luke's theme spotted around and Ben's theme spotted around and a little bit of Leia's theme here and there for some Leia bits. And, you know, the Death Star motif and the Imperial motif. But mainly, it's that Rebel fanfare supported by Luke's theme and Ben's theme. And those drive that whole score. By the time you get to Jedi, you've got the Luke theme, you've got the Force theme, you've got Leia's theme, you've got the Han and Leia theme, now you've got a Luke and Leia theme, you've got Yoda's theme, you've got the Imperial March, you've got the Emperor's theme, you've got Jabba's theme... Each one gets less focus and less use and therefore less variety in use because you have so many to bounce between. Also, when you're trying to work in all of these different themes, like if you had a scene in New Hope, there'd be like a theme that the score for that scene was built around. By the time you get to Jedi, you've got five different elements in the scene that all have their own theme. And so if you're trying to incorporate all of that, you don't get to focus on one for the entirety of the track. I would argue that the first act at Jabba's Palace does focus a lot on his theme, because other than his theme, there's a lot of athematic kind of sneaking around music. Yeah, there's a lot of atmospheric music. Yeah, so that, I think, is, is a little more focused on Jabba's theme. One thing that really stood out to me about the whole Jabba sequence, in the Rancor scene... Like, the first half of that entire sequence doesn't have themes in it at all. And then you get, like, bits of Luke's theme, but not a lot of it. That entire Rancor scene has, like, almost no themes. I just rattled off, like, ten different themes that this movie's built around. The Rancor scene had almost none of them, just little bits of Luke's theme. But it still, it just sounded like Star Wars. Yeah, the dungeon fight is built more around these lumbering rhythms and sort of quick ostinati to try to give some heft and threatening feeling to the monster effects. But the thing that really jumped out at me is that you listen to that for like two seconds and you go, oh yeah, that sounds like Star Wars. Oh yeah. But there's no theme. There's no Luke's theme. There's no Force theme. There's not even Jabba's theme. It's just incidental music. But there's just some quality it has that just sounds like Star Wars.
which, as we move forward, is a quality that, in my memory at least, we'll see if it's confirmed, is lacking in some of these later Star Wars scores. We'll definitely be looking for that. <laughs> Absolutely. But it just, it struck me how distinctly Star Wars that track can sound without using any of the Star Wars themes. But it's still great, and it's still distinctly Star Wars. It's just one of a dozen or more distinctive, incredible set pieces that are just sprinkled into this score. It's amazing. There are so many of them. Yeah, but all of those are built around, like, not a repeating character theme, but at least its own theme within that track. You know, Into the Trap has, like, its own theme that it's built around. The Final Duel has its own theme that it's built around. The Rancor scene doesn't even have that. You know, it's not like the asteroid field, that it's a one-off thing, but it has its own theme running through it. The Rancor scene is just sort of incidental music to accentuate the action, but it somehow just all hangs together. It's sort of in contrast to what they do with the Sail Barge Assault, which is basically a Rebel fanfare suite. Well, it's a re-recording of various parts of the first Star Wars score. Yeah, they use, like, every single motif that they use to lead into the Rebel fanfare, or run out of the Rebel fanfare, or accentuate the Rebel fanfare. Like, every technique, and every pattern, and every motif that they use in all of the various parts to run into the Rebel fanfare, they use all in this one track. There's, like... Ten different kinds of rolling thunder. There's a little bit of TIE Fighter attack. There's all of it. All of it in one track. And it is so good. It might be my second favorite Star Wars track after New Hope main title. just in this movie. Well, yeah, the Death Star attack in Jedi has a lot of music from the Death Star attack in New Hope. Yeah, it's a straight-up rearrangement of parts of TIE Fighter attack in the Battle of Yavin, as is the Sail Barge Assault, which, while tying those two main action sequences together that really define the movie also makes me think of what we were saying during the first Star Wars score discussion when we said that that was temp-tracked with all sorts of classical music and everything else was temp-tracked with Star Wars. 
But it all works, and it all carries this incredible energy. A lot of the pieces from the Battle of Yavin that are used for the Sail Barge Assault in Jedi, I think, have a quicker tempo. They're, you know, adjusted and, and finessed and tied together organically. While we're still talking about the first act of the movie, I want to talk a little bit about Jabba's theme, which, in contrast to all of the other villain themes, makes prodigious use of the tuba, which isn't often a threatening instrument, particularly. Is that a tuba, or is it on the bassoon? It appears on the bassoon and some of the other woodwinds at points, but the main uses of it are on the tuba. It's, at times, basically a concerto for tuba and orchestra. Although there is a lengthy piece early on in the score where it gets passed from section to section in the orchestra the way that we talked about some of the themes in New Hope being treated. That's when the different individual phrases of it kind of get traded back and forth between the tuba and the oboe, the clarinet, the flutes, and, and the bassoon, I think, yeah. Jabba's theme does an admirable job of trying to be dark and menacing, and yet also kind of silly. Yeah, it almost feels like it's styled after an absurd princeling in, like, a medieval drama. Oh my god, is Jabba Falstaff? The thing that shocked me is I didn't realize Jabba's theme had a B theme. Yeah. I have no memory of that before the other day. Well, I'm sure that was explored on the concert suite that I don't think was ever completely released. It may not have been completely recorded for the original film recording, I'm not sure, but on the original album, the track Han Solo Returns, parentheses, at the court of Jabba the Hutt, has an extended reading of Jabba's theme with more of the tuba, of course, and kind of a lengthening of it. There's a concert suite of Jabba's theme? Partially. I mean, that doesn't entirely surprise me, I guess, but wow. I think it's one of the ones that they, like, sell the sheet music for. 
you know, if you want to buy, you know, Star Wars, the concert suites. But part of it does appear on the original album that isn't in the releases that conform more to the movie. While we're talking about the new themes for Return of the Jedi, let's talk a little bit about the Ewoks. I think a lot of people, when they consider franchises that they like, have an overreaction to elements of them that are a bit silly. And I think when people get into these franchises as children, there's an urge as they grow up to eschew and downplay and badmouth the elements that are inserted for children or that are a little silly. And so you get a lot of the over-serious people who despise the Ewoks. But... The Ewoks are cute. The Ewoks are comic relief sometimes, and they're a remarkably large piece of the final battle, and I think that the theme that Williams provides for them covers all of those elements. Where, at times, it's kind of a silly parade, but there's also a melodic element that carries a little more heft, and then it's able to be used very briefly in brief spurts as a fanfare all throughout the battle on Endor. I think it covers all of those elements of the Ewoks, all of their roles in the story very well, and it's a very versatile theme. things. I think it's remarkably good from that aspect of it. The only... I don't even want to characterize it as a bad thing or a contra point or whatever. The only thing that sort of stands in opposition to that is that the Ewok theme has to stand up against Luke's theme and the Imperial March and the Force theme. And it feels very different from all of those like grand epic themes. That's true. I mean, it's good. It captures sort of the childlike nature that the Ewoks get assigned. It captures the sort of fun, funny stuff that the Ewoks get. It's also good in the battle. It has like a little bit of war cry in there. It does cover all of the different aspects that the Ewoks have in the movie. And does them all very well. It's very useful. It's very versatile. But it doesn't stand up if you're going to compare it to the Imperial March, or the Throne Room March, or the main title. It's going to suffer in that comparison. That's fair. That's fair. 
it just really struck me listening to this with fresh ears, as it were, just how much of that Ewok theme is woven into that final battle, where just a few notes can be sounded out on trumpets as a war cry and can really jumpstart some of the pieces. You're talking about being used in small snippets. I think like one half of one of the Battle of Endor tracks is just the Forest Battle concert suite. Well, no, the, the concert suite of the Forest Battle uses a couple pieces from the battle and part of a cue that Williams wrote for the Sail Barge Assault that was unused and kind of rearranges them, orchestrates them differently, and puts them together into a more cohesive concert suite. Because, as a concert suite, it doesn't have to conform to particular scenes in the film. So, it's just kind of rearranged in that way. There's a track on the CD that comes between Battle of Endor 1 and Battle of Endor 2 that's called The Ewok Battle, which is in large part the Forest Battle Concert Suite. Yeah, with it's the first part of the Concert Suite, with different orchestration as it conforms to the movie. Part of the overreaction to things that people perceive as silly, I think, is a disdain for the Ewok celebration from the end of the original cut of Jedi. There are people who don't like Yubnub? Yeah, there are people who feel it's inadequate as a culmination of the film and the trilogy. There are people who feel it's silly. But it's awesome! Yes! Of course it is! Look, look. 
besides, the culmination of the film and the trilogy is the end title. Yeah, but non-score people don't hang around for the end title. I can't imagine somebody not liking Yubnob. Yeah, there were people who didn't like it. There were people who thought it should be replaced. And apparently George Lucas was one of those. But, I mean, if you want to talk about music that doesn't feel like it fits in a Star Wars movie, the victory celebration from the special edition is a prime example. Ewok Celebration is distinct and stands out from the rest of the score because it's a very different sort of piece of music. Victory Celebration feels like it's supposed to be more in line with the rest of the score, but it isn't. Because it doesn't feel like Star Wars in the way that the Rancor music does. It's a perfectly fine piece of music. It would fit well in many other movies. It doesn't fit into Star Wars. There are elements of it that I think might have been intended to tie in a little more. There's the baritone vocal that might be trying to echo the baritone chorus for the Emperor a little bit. And there's the children's choir that might be trying to represent the Ewoks in a way that isn't Yubnub. But I really just don't feel like it works. In the film, it doesn't. On the CD, it doesn't, because it doesn't fit in with anything that comes before or after. And good lord, the transition from Victory Celebration into the end title? Terrible. They've tried to do that, like, four different times, and it's always terrible. It's terrible in the movie, it's terrible on the CD in very different ways. It seems very strange to me that they called Williams back to write a new finale for the movie that he knew would have to transition into the end title, and he didn't write it in such a way that it could be seamlessly woven into the beginning of the end title. I don't completely understand how that happened. Did John Williams actually write Victory Celebration? I thought they had some other guy that did the special edition music for Jedi. Another person did Jedi Rocks. Williams did the Victory Celebration. Not to mention, there's some source music in the Ewok Village, which is still in the movie, that ties into the melody from the original Ewok Celebration. Overall, on this original trilogy show, we've only mentioned a few of the special edition changes, because only a few of them really affected the music specifically, but all of the ones that do affect the music specifically were very ill-considered. 
Uh, we didn't even mention during the Empire show the um, inserted shots of Vader returning to his ship in the middle of the hyperspace queue that completely grind it to a halt. Well, that queue gets ground to a halt several times. Because it keeps switching between the Millennium Falcon trying to escape from Cloud City and then going back to Luke in his hospital bed in the Millennium Falcon med bay, like telepathic coming back and forth with Vader, and then back to the Millennium Falcon cockpit with the really fast-paced trying to escape music. And so that in and of itself sort of breaks the pattern of the building tension and the building excitement of the escaping music. That's organic. That's woven into the music. The shots that they inserted and the music they inserted just completely breaks it. The musical changes in Jedi, both of the big ones, we've roundly excoriated so far. So, there were some okay things about the special editions as far as, you know, the compositing and some of the color correction or whatever. But the musical changes were pretty bad and something of a foreshadowing of music treatment going forward. But that's another show. Well, what it does is it proves your point that you made earlier. When we talked about, well, what if they just went back and edited in the Imperial March into New Hope? And you made the point that you can't do that and still have it feel like New Hope. And the example to prove your point is Victory Celebration. Hey, John Williams, write something in 1995 that's going to feel like this thing that you wrote in 1983. It doesn't even sound like he was specifically trying to tie into the rest of the Jedi score. It's a very strange insertion. Also, the fact... I guess the original Yub Nub was sung, but it was like source singers. You know, it was the Ewoks supposedly doing the singing. The Victory Celebration just has like a choir. And vocal music isn't really used in Star Wars other than the Emperor's theme. And I guess later with Snoke, but we'll get there. But specifically referring to the original trilogy, the only time they really use vocals is that really deep bass choir that does the Emperor's theme and some of the Luke and Vader duel music. And so to all of a sudden have, like, this la-la-la choir in the Victory Celebration is one of the things that makes it feel out of place. Let's talk about the Emperor's theme some more. It does introduce a very heavy use of chorus, which will be with us in Star Wars from here forward. Yeah, that's one of the things that strikes me whenever I listen to Jedi, because whenever they use the Emperor's theme in the prequels, it's always the deep bass choir version. And in Jedi, it gets such a more rounded and varied treatment. The choir is interesting, though, because it's so deep that it manages to sound odd and disconcerting while also being full of menacing threat.
It's another theme that sort of does both not entirely incompatible things, but largely incompatible things. The thing that's interesting to me about the Emperor's theme is that it is always conveying the power of the Emperor in different ways. In its standard kind of slow baritone chorus arrangement, it's a kind of sedate, collected power. We're working with a lot of character archetypes here, and the Emperor is the evil wizard who feels like he is eternal. As he's presented in Return of the Jedi, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of character change for the Emperor. <laughs> he is extremely powerful. He has always been extremely powerful. He will always be extremely powerful until the victory of our heroes. But the standard slower arrangement of his theme conveys that in more of a low-key way which really makes it stand out when there are arrangements for it on the high trumpets or other instrumentation kind of shows a very different dimension. Some of, some of the brass arrangements toward the end of the movie are spectacular at showing that power in a more active way. sort of plays off Darth Vader's theme. Because Darth Vader's theme is more active. It's a march. And the Emperor is more laid-back, passively controlling events. Yeah, but do they ever play Darth Vader's theme on that high trumpet the way they do the Emperor's theme near the end? I can't imagine the Imperial March having that sort of instrumentation behind it. I don't even know how that would sound. Well, certainly there's no end to the brass arrangements for it, but if you mean specifically that high, high brass, maybe not. If we're talking about new themes for this movie, can we talk about the Luke and Leia theme next? Yeah, it's really stood out to me, as we've been revisiting these scores, that Leia, through this trilogy, keeps accruing new themes. And as the movies go on, the themes that she gets in Empire and now the Luke and Leia theme in Jedi are about her relationships with the other characters, while the theme for her on her own gets used less and less. I would say 
And this is what I thought was going to be my Jedi hot take before I realized that I kind of liked Jedi Rocks when it wasn't in the movie. There is no reason whatsoever for this Luke and Leia theme to exist. It serves no purpose that wasn't already being served by the individual character themes. It's not even used much. It's used a little bit in one track and then barely touched on at the very end. It really doesn't exist other than so that John Williams can do a concert suite of it. Which is a fine concert suite. And much like the concert suite for the Han and Leia love theme, integrates elements of Leia's theme as well. I think it's a fine theme. It may be the most mature-sounding theme that's in this trilogy. It sounds like it's developed to a level that many of the other themes aren't in its conception, not in its use. It's only used, as you say, a couple of times. And so I can't really argue that much. It's not a major theme. Like when you look at the new themes composed for Empire, the Imperial March is all over the fucking movie. Yoda's theme is all over the Yoda scenes and used as action cues in Cloud City. When you look at the themes for Jedi, Jabba's theme is all over the Jabba scenes. The Ewok theme is all over the Ewok scenes. The Emperor's theme is all over the Emperor scenes. The Luke and Leia theme is partially used twice. Yeah, in terms of the score inside of the film... It's almost an afterthought. Like, when Luke realizes Leia is his sister, they don't use the Luke and Leia theme. When Luke and Leia reunite at the Rebel Assembly after he leaves Dagobah, they don't use the Luke and Leia theme. Yeah, it doesn't come in until she is finding out that they are family, and then they get their theme. But then they don't really share much screen time together after that. That seed is their last time together until during the Ewok celebration. That's something that fascinated me, because I went back and watched the end of the movie, because I wanted to brush up on the transition from Victory Celebration to End Title, because it's bad differently in the movie than it is bad on the CD. Mm. You realize the final line of dialogue in Star Wars, until they started making more Star Wars, but... When they said we're done with Star Wars, the final line of dialogue in Star Wars was, He's my brother. Oh, of course. Although that changed in the special edition. Because in the special edition, or I guess not in the special edition, but in the super duper edition, 
whatever they call that later one, there's an added line of dialogue when they show the victory celebration on Naboo and a voice can be heard yelling, We saw free! Okay. <laughs> I mean, we saw, so... <laughs> I had wondered... This is out of order, but I'm just going to bring it up because I don't want to make the same joke twice. Mm. I Just an idle thought when I was listening to this, when we got to the part where 3PO tells the story of Star Wars to all the Ewoks, and they play this little, like, mini-suite of a bunch of different themes right in a row as 3PO retells different parts of the Star Wars story. And I wondered, did 3PO end his story by saying, and now we saw here? <laughs> Another sort of podcast would have a whole conversation about which languages might have been wiped from C-3PO's brain after he got his memory wiped, but let's not. Does he remember the Gungans? Frankly, I don't care. Okay, that's my last joke about how bad Phantom Menace was. We're not here to talk about the movies, we're here to talk about the score. That we're not here to talk about the Phantom Menace, we're here to talk about Return of the Jedi. That really is another show. <laughs> We've mentioned a couple of the astounding set pieces in this score. There are so many cues with fantastic melodies that Williams tosses out once, never to be seen again, which is just amazing to me. You mentioned Into the Trap, the rebel fleet arriving at the Death Star and seeing that the shield is still up, that has this militaristic theme that keeps the rhythm of the cue, keeps the cue exciting, keeps that scene exciting, and is just completely unique to that scene. same theme going while the movie shifts from the fleet arriving and realizing the shield is up to the team on the surface that's going to bomb the bunker but then they get captured and then back to space where now they're engaging with fighters that they didn't expect to be there and the theme just stays consistent and as is a through line that ties everything together and that's really the only time they do that because later when they have the forest battle on the ground they're using a lot of the Ewok music and when they shift back to the battle in space, they're using a lot of rebel fanfare and, and stuff like that. And so the scenes of the ground battle and the space battle are more separate scenes at that point. Whereas that Into the Trap sequence, they're all tied together. And it's the music that does that. Right. Later on, while the ground battle and the space battle and the lightsaber duel are happening simultaneously, and we're cutting back and forth between them. There are the different styles of action music used for the two battles, and the lightsaber duel 
Taking a cue from the more sedate version of the Emperor's theme is scored in a more low-key fashion that eventually builds and builds and, dramatically speaking, explodes during the final duel when Vader enrages Luke and, and Luke unleashes his anger and his hate upon him. And leading into that, when Vader is taunting him, it's scored solely by a low synthesizer. So there's this low synth melody, which just explodes into full orchestra and the chorus and this amazing operatic piece that uses the chorus from the Emperor's theme, but it's not any of the pre-established themes. It, it's this incredible, incredible piece. Dual piece is so good. It's probably my second favorite Star Wars track after the New Hope main title. <laughs> and it's really unique to me because, in most ways, it's not at all a piece of action music. I mean, you know no. me, I love my action music. Right. This is not at all a piece of action music. It, like you said, it's the low bass chorus. It's not fast-paced, it's not high-energy, it's just low and bassy, but it's relentless. The strings feel like they're slicing. The melody feels like it comes on in waves. Yes, it comes on in waves, but it also... That's the thing that links it most directly to the action on screen to me, is that the way the chorus just builds and then builds on itself and then builds on itself, it feels relentless. Yes. 
And you're right that it's not action music, because using specifically action music there would make it too heroic, when the point is that Luke is being driven almost to the dark side. And so, that choral element of the Emperor's theme, representing the dark side, erupts into a possible corruption. And then when it winds down... You know, the Emperor comes in to congratulate him and accept him to the dark side, and the Emperor's theme comes back and and is met with this small, sensitive iteration of the Force theme as Luke denies the temptation. It's just a remarkable piece of music. I really want to talk about the movie now. (laughs) Because that's such a contrast to the... uh fight in Revenge of the Sith. Oh, God. Where Anakin does one dark thing and then just goes, well, yes, I'm dark now. Let me go murder the children. And the Emperor waltzes in, obviously assuming Luke did his one dark thing. Now he's mine. And Luke's like, no, that's stupid. Oh, my God. <laughs> and everyone around them goes, what? It also contrasts beautifully with everything around it because the scene of the space battle that precedes that final duel and the scene on Endor immediately after the final duel, those are action cues. Those are full of high-energy, high-tempo action music. Yes. And so the Luke and Vader duel stands in stark contrast to everything that's happening around it. Ratcheting back a bit, I want to talk about three set-piece cues from earlier in the film dealing with the Rebel fleet and the Rebel plan. After the scene between Obi-Wan and Luke, where Luke realizes that Leia's his sister, we cut back to the Rebel fleet with just an amazing one-off fanfare. I think it's the same music, like I don't think it's the same melody, but that piece felt very similar to me to the music they use on Hoth right before the evacuation, when everyone's running around preparing for the battle, and I think the specific moment, I may not be right about this because I haven't gone back and watched the movie, but I think the specific moment in the film is when Leia is giving her speech to the rebels when they're getting ready for the battle and the evacuation, and they play this tune that When I listened to it on the Empire CD, it sounded very familiar to me, and I wasn't sure if it's because it's actually reused again, or if it's just because I've seen Empire a lot. But this Alliance Assembly track, I don't think it's the same melody, but it has the same feel as that earlier Rebel music. The briefing on the plans for the new Death Star attack also has another 
kind of stately, heroic melody. Again, that Williams tosses out once. I also think it's interesting in that briefing cue, there's a really low-key reading of the Rebel fanfare on strings right before Luke shows up. And then right after Luke's theme signals his entry, there are echoes of Lando's theme from Empire, which I hadn't actually realized made it into Jedi at all. Yeah, that was another one where I heard it and it took me a minute to go, wait, what theme is that? I had to listen back to it a couple of times before it struck me, because as I'm listening to this, I'm remembering the movie so that I know sort of what scene is being scored so that I can judge them that way, and I didn't quite see how the Lando Cloud City music fit there, because at that point in the track, like, Luke is hugging Han and Leia and whatever, and, like, clapping Chewie on the shoulder. So I wasn't sure if maybe I was misjudging it, and that piece is from the later scene when Lando was leaving with the Millennium Falcon. But yeah, that was that surprised me when I realized the Cloud City theme was in that track. There's a couple of things like that. It's the, the one that, like, shocked me. And apparently this is old news, but I'm an ignorant rube, so here we go. When the Rebel fleet jumps into hyperspace, which kind of surprised me anyway as I was listening to it, because there's the whole Ewok stuff, and then the speeder bike chase, and they get separated, and there's the Leia with the Ewok stuff, and then there's the rest of them being captured by the Ewoks, and then there's, you know, getting back together with... And then all of a sudden, there's the scene of the Rebel fleet jumping into hyperspace, and in my head I'm like, oh yeah, the rest of the fleet exists. <laughs> like, I had forgotten about that. But that scene where the fleet jumps into hyperspace, the tune that they play there as they jump is the Throne Room March B theme from the end of A New Hope. also revived at the very end of the Jedi End credits. Yes. But I didn't know it was in the movie itself. That shocked the hell out of me. Apparently it's like in the fucking liner notes and everyone already knows this, but it shocked the hell out of me. That's just one of the very subtle references in these scores that as we're listening to these with fresh ears, it's just a joy to find these things. Now I'm glad we have a podcast. <laughs> If we didn't have a podcast, then who would put Jabba's Baroque recital under their live read? We mentioned in the other two movies that, like, each one sort of had one theme that sort of took the forefront and sort of carried the movie. In New Hope, it was the Rebel fanfare, 
which sort of surprised us because you'd think it would be Luke's theme. In Empire, the Imperial March was all over the place, but the tune that really sort of carried a lot of that movie was the Hand and Leia love theme. Which theme do you think is the one that is sort of at the forefront that carries Jedi? Like, which theme is the through line that runs all the way through Jedi and carries the movie? That's a little tough, since, as you pointed out earlier, the score is broken up a little more because of the very discreet themes for very discreet story elements. You know, Jabba's theme is limited to the first act. The Ewok theme is limited to the back half of the movie. Luke and Leia's theme, obviously, we mentioned, is sparse. So, by process of elimination, we land on the Emperor's theme, no? I think that the primary theme that runs all through the movie and carries the bulk of the load for this movie more than any other theme is the triumphant return of the Rebel fanfare. It does really make a triumphant return here. From, from the Jabba battle right through the Death Star destruction. The Rebel fanfare, I feel like, is the one theme more than any other that carries this entire score, not just pieces of the score. It is used very consistently here, that's true, and it's a very welcome element in a lot of the action pieces. Because it's a really great action tune. I mean, I've said before, I think the Rebel fanfare is highly underrated. Apparently. Because like you said, the Jabba theme is all over the Jabba scenes, and the Ewok theme is all over the Ewok scenes, and the Emperor theme is all over the Emperor scenes, but... The Rebel fanfare is in the Jabba scenes, and the Rebel fanfare is when they plan the mission, and the Rebel fanfare is there when they're on Endor, and the Rebel fanfare is there when the fleet arrives, and the Rebel fanfare is there for the space battle, and the Rebel fanfare is there for the ground battle, and the Rebel fanfare is there for the destruction of the Death Star. I think the Rebel fanfare carries this movie more than any other individual theme does. The other theme that gets some great arrangements and is used in different places in the movie is, of course, the Force theme, which reaches its apotheosis over uh, Darth Vader's funeral pyre. Well, the Force theme reaches its apotheosis in the alternate track that was planned for Darth Vader's funeral pyre, but was later replaced. The track in the movie is actually, it fits the movie better. It's a smaller, more personal rendition of the Force theme that fits the scene with Luke better. But the alternate take is sort of what I think a lot of people think of when they think of, like, the definitive rendition of the Force theme. Like, if they're not thinking of Binary Sunset or the Throne Room March, they're thinking of Funeral Pyre alternate.
Is this the one alternate cue you actually like? Well, I like the cue. I still wouldn't say the movie would have been better with it than what was actually in the movie. It was removed and replaced for a reason. As I said, the cue that's in the movie fits the scene better. It makes it a much more personal scene about Luke, rather than making it this giant, grand thing that the alternate cue makes it sound like. The film version also has a uh, harp added that I think is really nice, kind of trailing off. Harps are sort of a distinctive instrument in Star Wars scores. Like, there's a lot of harp in these scores. I suppose there is. I mean, as much as I harp on the brass section, because I love everything to be played really loud on the brass section, part of what makes a Star Wars score sound like Star Wars is that harp that shows up all the time. There are a few particular instrumentation choices that I think makes a Star Wars score sound like a Star Wars score. Flutes, I think, are also prominent in a lot of pieces. The opening of Star Wars, with that flute line trailing down after the main title, I think mm-hmm. really sets that apart. But that is definitely one of, one of the hallmarks, yeah. One thing that struck me listening to this... One of the things that always stood out to me in this score as, like, a really unique element is the music for Darth Vader's death. Yes, absolutely. And that's another harp forward track. Where they take that, like, giant, imposing, menacing threat of doom, Imperial March, and they play it smaller, and they play it on a harp, and they play it on some strings... They play it softer, they play it in a more intimate fashion, and it just sounds so very different from the march that it's almost unimaginable if all you've ever heard is the march, and then you suddenly hear this track and you go, wow. After listening to the prequel scores, this doesn't feel as special to me anymore. Really? I mean, after everything they did related to Vader's theme, after they incorporated it into Anakin's theme and Phantom Menace... After, like, the various ways they used parts of it for various Anakin scenes and all the prequels. I mean, I still like the track. It's still a good track, but it just doesn't feel as unique and special to me as it did when I first was listening to it. Like, when you watch that scene in the movie, and when I first got the CD in the 90s and was listening to it, that was like a wow track. And it's not anymore, not for me. Yeah, I love the interplay... I keep talking about this between different instruments and different sections. It goes from the violin to the flute to the oboe, this really gentle French horn and and finishing on the harp, just so gentle and sensitive. I think it still retains its power. It does for me, still. 
I'm pretty good at putting a lot of the prequel stuff out of my head. The last thing I want to mention possibly plays into a new psychosis I've developed while we've been doing this show. I may be starting to hallucinate. I'm hearing the New Hope Imperial theme everywhere. The opening scene of Return of the Jedi, after Vader lands and gets off of his shuttle, there's this tremulo motion in the strings as he's talking to the Imperial official. I can't believe it, but it seems related to the old Imperial theme to me. It's not note-for-note, note, obviously, but that sort of motion feels very reminiscent to me now. It may just be something interesting Williams wanted to do with the strings in that cue that just happens to be vaguely similar, and I'm picking up on it now because I've been paying more attention. I don't know. I, I can't get this out of my head now. If I hear it in the prequels, I don't know what I'm going to do. I guess you could make the argument that's the problem with simpler motifs as opposed to giant grand themes, is that it's a lot easier to get false positives. Uh, arguably, sure. Like, you're not going to hear anything and go, is that the Force theme? I don't know. Is it supposed to be the Force theme? Maybe it just happens to sound like the Force theme? Like, nothing just happens to sound like Luke's theme. No random repeating pattern is going to be mistaken for the Imperial March. Of course, these are issues that don't come up as much when you're making one random film for some oddball director, rather than the birth of a 15-movie franchise. I think that that will do it for our discussion of Return of the Jedi, and indeed, our discussion of the original trilogy itself. Dear listeners... If you would like to find me in the world of the internet, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Glenny Bun. You can reach the show at spectacularadvice at gmail.com if you would like to leave a comment question, suggestion for the show. Scott, where are you on the internet? Oh, good lord. It finally happened. You've negged me into joining the internet. Haven't I, though? I, in fact, can be found on the lines, on the Tweety machine, at SpectacularSco. Because Twitter has a character limit on usernames. Throughout your life, I have noticed, you keep ramming into character limits as if you're running into a wall, pretending that the wall isn't there because you don't think the wall should be there. And your point? My point is I should expect this by now. So do, indeed, find Scott at Spectacular Sco. We'll see if I can get you on TikTok. That might take a while. Oh, good lord. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. We will be back next week with the prequel trilogy, but for now, 
always remember to celebrate the light and celebrate the love and let the music play. Well, that had a hard turn into Fraggle Rock at the end there. If we didn't have a podcast, who would put Jedi Rocks under their livery? No.